All right. All right, we're going to move on here. Hey, um, this last week, I had the opportunity to go to the State Fair on Wednesday, which was the perfect day to do it. It was nice and cool. There wasn't a whole lot of people. It wasn't like the great Minnesota sweat together. It was just an awesome, like, day to go to the fair. Um, I got these new things called, like, um, Irish tater kegs. And they were basically, if you, if you like uh, Reuben sandwiches, right? So it's a giant tater tot with corned beef and sauerkraut in it. Uh, and then, you know, put some Thousand Island dressing over the top. That was, that was bad. Uh, I ate way too many of those. Um, but it was a lot of fun. While we were there, though, um, there, was, uh, there was these, you know, there's always shows. That's what I love about the State Fair is. You don't even have to have, like, the day planned. You just kind of can walk around and find something and sit in this concert or this show or some. There's some. There's a family that tap dance, right? So we watched them for a little bit, um, and I actually ran into uh, Pastor Cor Shimoleski's family. Um, they didn't know who he was, but they were wearing Shimoleski Fun Time shirts. And if you don't know us about Pastor Cor, he has family that like are a really popular popular uh, polka band uh, up in northern Minnesota. And so that was kind of funny. Um, they had no idea who he was, but I was like, no, I, I've heard of your band before. So, anyways. Um, we went and saw these, uh, the loggers, uh, what are not loggers, but the lumberjacks, right? And lumberjills, they were there too. And, and before they come out, they tell you, all right, you're this side, you know, from this side over here, you're all going to cheer for, um, this, this, these two people. And then this half of the auditorium, you're going to cheer for these two people. And, and so these people come out and, and just because you were told to cheer for them, they cheer for them. But then these people are booing for them, right? And it's like, you you don't even know who they are, right? You don't know anything about them, but because somebody told you cheer for them, you're going to cheer for them, and because somebody told you to, I don't know, boo for them, you're going to boo for them. I was just kind of, it was just kind of one of those weird things, and it brought me back to when I was in college, and I'm not going to name names or schools or anything, but we did this thing um, where they took the entire college, several thousand people, and they split us in half, like, okay, you're going to be blue thunder, and you're going to be red lightning. And fist fights broke out over which team was better, right? It, it didn't make, it didn't compute into why are we cheering for Blue Thunder when it's not even a thing, right? It's they just, just do this. We're going to do these games. We're going to play these. I don't even know what we did, but we did. And people lost their minds over it. Now, sometimes when people are told like, hey, we're going to do this cheer, or we're going to sing this song, whatever, they it doesn't seem like, why are, why are we doing this? But then there are also times where, where praise and giving somebody praise is, is welcomed, right? And it's, and it's a good thing to do that. And we, we should actually, and we want to do that, right? When my wife cooks an amazing meal, uh, it's, it's appropriate for me to go, babe, that was really good. Like, like, save that. Let's do that again, right? Whatever it may be. And, it's, and I'm giving her praise that she's earned, Right? Um, and that's a good thing. Today I help my brother-in-law move. Ugh, that's the worst. Can we just make a pact? Like nobody move the next ten years, and I'm sick of it. But don't don't hesitate to ask me for help if you need help. Didn't mean it like that. Um, and I helped him move. And of course, they're like, "Hey, thank you for for doing that. We know you got to go take another shower and go to work again." But um, and they're appreciative of it, right? If if, if I just would have done it and they wouldn't have said anything, just like, "Oh yeah." Thanks for nothing. See you later. Right? I would have probably been hurt by that. Uh, maybe. I don't think I'm that sensitive. I hope not. But um, anyways, that's kind of where we're going tonight. And we're going to see that God not only displays his glory, but we're going to see that he's worthy of that glory. He's worthy of that praise. 
And that's what, this is one of them. This is, this, I've been looking forward to this passage forever. And then all of a sudden, it just kind of snuck up on me. Uh, this is actually my last time to preach. Next week, our church planter and residents will, will finish us out. He's got five chapters, so I don't know how he's going to do it. I was like, sorry, not me. You got the last five. Um, but, but what's cool is, right, we talked about the Ten Commandments, which are up in that window. But then this week is actually this cleft, this cleft for me, right, this, this rock where, where Moses is going to be hid as the glory of God passes by, and, uh, and that's where we're going to be. So I can't really recap, but what I can do is talk about what happened last week. There was this huge step backwards, right? They, they went back in time, basically, uh, that it was instead of, instead of like, you know, two steps forward, one step back, it was, it was one step forward and 80 steps backwards. They, they were co- co- clearly commanded and explicitly told, do not make any graven images. Why? Because you're my image bearers. And so you are to be fruitful. You are to multiply because every human being who's ever walked in the face of the earth some way, in some way, shape, or form reflects their creator. And so it's blasphemy to create something to represent Yahweh. He's saying, no, no, no. We, we as humans are made in God's image. So don't even think about making anything. And they, of course, do that. Make a giant golden calf. Um, to represent Yahweh. So they, they thought they were safe on the first command of don't have any other gods before me. They're like, oh yeah, we're cool. We're still gonna say this calf represents Yahweh. And he's like, no, but then you miss point two, right? That says don't make any graven images, right? That's why even in this old building, you don't see pictures of God or Jesus. Other than that one, that was added later, so that one doesn't count. Um, uh, my father-in-law, I was, he was asking me today, um, he's retired, last week was his last Sunday preaching, and so I had the opportunity to go, go hear him. And, and uh, this week, he just kind of asked me when I see him, what am I preaching on this week? And I, I told him about um, it's a week after the golden calf. And he said that he went on sabbatical a couple years ago and, you know, was gone for the summer, basically, you know, three or four months. And he said when he came back the first week, he said he walked up to the, to the pulpit, and they have a bigger pulpit there. And um, there, was a, there was a golden calf sitting <laughs> underneath, the, underneath the pulpit. I thought that was kind of funny, like preacher joke, ha-ha. Uh, um, Anyways, okay, so this week, though, there's going to be a huge step forward, and we're going to see kind of Moses salvaging the situation for his people, uh, and, it's, and it's really, really a neat thing. So this is going to be Exodus chapter 33, 7 through 34, 35, so all of chapter 34, um, and, uh, and most of Exodus chapter 33 as well. And so I'm just going to do a little bit of commentary. I'll have all the scripture up on the, up on the screen if you don't have your, your Bible with you, but i um, just going to make some comments have a couple commentaries. There's going to be a lot of words tonight. This is one of those, um, a, lot of, a lot of words, but we're going to get through this, and I, and I hope that tonight you walk out of here more in love with your Savior than you did when you walked in. Um, that's, that's the goal, and I know that's, like, well, that's the goal every week, but, but it, it really is tonight. The tent of meeting, the tent of meeting we looked at, which was called the tabernacle, but now it's not the tabernacle. There's this new phrase, and so even in the NIV, NIV from which I'm, I'm reading from, that version Actually, lower cases, tent of meeting here. There's something different about this one, okay? So now, now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. All right, so just pitch a little tent, and we wanted to go talk with Yahweh, he would go into that little tent. It says, and anyone inquiring of Yahweh would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. So it seems as if anybody could have gone into this little tent and talked with Yahweh, except it, it seems a little implied that nobody does this except 
Moses, but we're not really told, but it seems to be that way. Verse 8, and whenever Moses went out to the tent, so Moses would leave the camp, right, this giant camp with all these people, and he would walk out away from the camp, but they could see him. As Moses was, would walk out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud, the representation of God's glory, his Shekinah glory, would come down and stay at the entrance of that little tent. And while Yahweh spoke with Moses, uh, and when Yahweh spoke with Moses, wherever the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance of their tent. And Yahweh, the, the, Yahweh would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Now, could you imagine? Like the creator of the universe is speaking to Moses um, the same way that, that I'm speaking to you now, whether we're friends or not, but you know, you know what I'm saying. And then Moses would return to the camp, and his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. There's a dad joke in there. I don't know if you've heard that. Who, who has the least amount of parents in the Bible? It's not Adam. It's Joshua, the son of Nun, right? All right. Two popular ancillary benefits. This is a commentary by Stuart, uh, I believe. Two, two popular ancillary benefits may also have occurred to this tent of meetings. He's going to kind of explain what would have been going on even culturally here. One would have been the way it, it forced individual Israelites to show their dependence on Yahweh. In contrast to their prior infidelity in the incident of idolatry described in the previous chapter, the golden calf, to inquire of the Lord, an Israelite had to separate himself spatially from the other Israelites in the camp and openly walk the considerable distance to the tent of meeting. He thus would not be able to blend into a crowd of Orthodox worshipers without identifying his own personal commitment to Yahweh. And it's kind of what happened uh, two weeks ago after the golden calf when, when Moses stands the tent and he says, if you're for Yahweh, come to me. Right? And there, you can't hide that. And that's what's happening here. In virtually all the other situations, the Israelites in mass had agreed to or disobeyed the covenant. And now the individual would have to show his loyalty to Yahweh publicly, at least if he wanted to know something from Yahweh. A second benefit may have been the uh, credentializing of Moses. Previously, he was always far distant from the people on top of Mount Sinai, not visible to them, and to their thinking, simply gone away without certain uh, return. That's what happened last week. Right? He's been gone forever. We don't know what happened to him. They never actually heard Yahweh give Moses the laws, and they never actually saw Moses in close proximity to Yahweh. Now, with this tent of meeting pitched outside the camp, but still within sight of it, they could not fail to see that every time Moses entered the tent of meeting, the glory of God also entered it. Then Moses says to Yahweh, You have been telling me, lead these people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. All right? I'm going to read a commentary on this a little bit. Okay, You have said, I know you by name. That's, he's talking about Moses. God, you've said this about me. I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. And remember that this nation is your people. So God meets with Yahweh and I love what he says here. He says, teach me your ways, why? So that I may know you. 
I can't know somebody simply by observing. I can get a little bit of a glimpse of who they are. I can, uh, right, maybe like a, a famous TV personality, right? If I only see their acting and their character of who they are in a TV show, right, Thor, right, what was his name, Chris, Chris something, he isn't actually Thor, right? He's not actually a superhero, right? So I don't know anything about Chris. I don't even know his last name, Hems, Hemsworth. I don't know him. And so he's saying here, God, teach me your ways. Because in by doing that, in by giving me your words, your scriptures, your laws, you're revealing who you are. It's not like, oh, I was going to read something. Man, I was building up right there. I'm going to read this real quick. There is little room for mysticism in biblical religion. We do not know God by having some sort of inexplicable, ethereal communion with him in which our feelings are used for the evidence of our closest to him. My feelings, uh, there's, there's a, a thing that, that I think a lot of Christians unfortunately place in trust in God, and that's peace. I just got peace about this decision. Nowhere in scripture does it say that me making this very difficult decision that I should have peace about it, because there are people who do things that are completely wicked that have peace about it. So peace isn't necessarily a, a thing. Right? What does scripture teach me? If I want to know and I want to obey, what does he tell me? We know him by learning his ways, revealed standards, revealed methods, and revealed benefits. In other words, by objective rather than subjective emotional means. It's okay to have emotions. There's no way to, to have worship and praise without having some kind of emotion of joy or happiness or pleasure. But it's not what makes me know God. I know God because he has revealed himself to me in scripture. And so it's not, I think, for a lot of people, this, this yin and yang or the force or karma, right? this idea that if I do something good, well, then good's gonna come back to me. It's not taught in scripture. I can't know karma. I can't know the force other than watching some movies, right? But I can know the creator of the universe because he's revealed himself to us in scripture. And so therefore, he is worthy of of worship, teach me your ways so that I may know you. So then God's presence then comes here to Moses. It says then Yahweh replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Because if you remember last week, he said, you're a stiff-necked people and I'm not gonna go with you. I'm gonna send my angel with you because if I go with you, I might just kill you all. And so Moses comes and he says, give me your, teach me your ways. You've, you, you know who I am, you, you know me. And so Yahweh responds, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? So right here, I mean, you're talking days later. Moses is asking Yahweh, be pleased with your people. What else will distinguish me and all of your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And Yahweh said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked because I am pleased with you and you know me by name. And then Moses makes an incredible request as he's speaking and communicating with Yahweh. He says, now show me your glory. Human being who has a relationship incredibly close, who can commune with God as a friend, ask for him to show me 
your glory. So what happens? 19. And Yahweh said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, right? I will invoke my name, who I am, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. That there's no way something sinful can, can physically see somehow this representation of what Yahweh is going to be. It cannot be in his presence. If you look on my face, you will die. And then Yahweh said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, right, as my goodness passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand and then you will see. Then you can look and you'll see my back but my face must not be seen. What is this goodness? What is this glory? And as I looked, I mean, there was so much that could be said here, I couldn't even pick a quote. So I'm not even, I'm just gonna babble here for just a few minutes, okay? What is this goodness? Right, this goodness that Moses is about to see is literally translated splendor or the absence of anything evil. We don't know that. That anytime we see or look at anybody in this world, yes, we can have joy, we can see good, but we also see pain and suffering as a result of the fall. And ever since that fall, there's sin and it taints everything that we do. And so what God says to Moses, I'm gonna let you see nothing bad. What? And it's not just, I'm not even gonna let you see it as we, he just, not even really gonna see anything. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hide you in a rock. Like you're not gonna see anything. And he says back here in the NIV, but it also could be translated like, you will see where I once was. Are you gonna see the after burning glow of what the absence of badness looks like. That's how powerful and beautiful and splendid the creator God is. So that's what happens. So now God's gonna tell him, make the stones. Because remember when he came down the mountain, symbolizing how Israel, how you have broken these covenants, the 10 commandments, he throws them down and they break, symbolizing you've broken, broken the covenant. So Moses, sir, excuse me, so Yahweh says to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. And I, Yahweh, I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. By the way, you broke it, and we're just redoing this. No, he's not saying that. Verse two, be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. And no one is to come with you or to be seen anywhere on the mountain, not even the flocks or herds may graze in front of the mountain. So now we have this renewal of the covenant, so to speak. Right, Israel, you already broke it. It took like weeks for you to break this covenant in a bad, bad way. And so now God's gonna renew his covenant. So Moses chiseled up the two tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as Yahweh had commanded him. And he carried down, or excuse me, he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. 
And then Yahweh came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger. Yes, he should have wiped the Israelites Israelites out. He should have wiped us out. It's only by grace that we're even breathing right now. He's slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents, the third and the fourth generation. We talked about what that means in Hebrew, of what that would have meant that their children were most likely, that if parents lived a certain way, the children were just going to follow right in their footsteps. So he's saying this, this kind of rebellion and idolatry cannot go unpunished. The children were not punished because they, their parents did something wrong, but they were part of it. So that's Yahweh passing and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to renew my covenant with you. And Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a, a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. And Yahweh said, I am making a covenant with you. And before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, Yahweh, will do for you. Obey what I command you today, and I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites. And be careful not to make a treaty with any of those who live in the land where you are going. That's going to be a big one. They're going to make treaties. Okay, It's not going to go well for Israel. So They're, they're already breaking the covenant, they're, at least they're going to, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their ash poles. These ash poles were just representations, false gods, and altars. Do not worship any god, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Jealous there is the noun. His name is Jealous. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. For when they prostitute themselves to their gods and to sacrifice them, they will invite you, and you will eat their sacrifices, and when you choose some of their daughters as wives and for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. He's saying this idolatry, there's a reason, again, as we looked at a while back, even this idea of holy war, that it's no longer a thing, it was a thing that God enacted to protect the Israelites, why? Because that was the way that God was gonna show his message of salvation. And so if Israel does these things or they're wiped out, then God's plan of redemption has been snuffed out and Satan is one. And that's not going to happen. He's saying, don't do this. Don't join with these people. Do not make any idols. Again, let me reassure you, do not make any idols. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. Uh, we talked about this. Make the bread without yeast as I've commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv. This is Passover. For that month you came out of Egypt. And the first offspring of every womb belongs to me, including all the firstborn males of your livestock, whether from the herd or the flock. Redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem all your firstborn sons. I talked about this 
in the 20s chapters. So if you want to know what that means, go, go back and listen to that. I just don't have time to explain what that means. Um, if you have questions about it, you can talk to me after the sermon too. No one is appeared to appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest, Sabbath. Even during the plowing season and the harvest, you must rest. He's just reiterating the big ones right here to Moses. Celebrate the festival of weeks and the first fruits of wheat harvest, the festival of ingathering at the turn of the year, three times a year. All your men are to appear before the sovereign Lord and God of Israel, and I will drive out the nations before you in a large your territory, and no one will covet your land when you go up three times each year to appear before Yahweh your God. Do not offer blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast, and do not let any of the sacrifice from the Passover festival remain until morning. He's just recapping what he's already said. Bring the best of the first fruits to the Lord in your soil, the house of Yahweh your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Again, that was a uh, a pagan ritual of, of worship, of, of bounty and plenty, okay? So we want a good um, crop this year. So they would take a mother and boil it, in its, in, or take a goat and boil it in its mother's milk, and in doing so, saying that the milk nourished this child, and if we kind of sacrifice this child back to this, this cycle will, con- will continue. God's saying, that, that's, that's the karma, that's the yin-yang. It's not the way this works. I'm telling you, that's not how this works. Worship me. And then Yahweh said to Moses, write down these words in accordance with the words that I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And Moses was there with, with Yahweh 40 days and 40 nights with a, uh, without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote the tablets and the words, the covenant, the Ten Commandments. It's funny, a couple of the commentaries were like, well, yeah, 40 doesn't always mean 40. But either way, it was a very long time. And so they say, well, he, there's no way he could have gone that long without water. It's like... He, God is still providing manna, like on the ground. I, I'm pretty sure he can sustain Moses for, for a little while here, right? So he gives him the Ten Commandments. All right, a lot of words. I told you, a lot of words tonight. All right, now, but now, now things are going to change. Right? Moses is going to come down. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, and he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with Yahweh. All right, his face glowed. I don't know what that would look like. But it must have been bright. Why? Because verse 30, when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. And afterward, all the Israelites came near him and gave him all these commands that Yahweh had given to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. Okay, so in front of the people, my face is glowing and shining, but when I go back into the presence of God, I get recharged, right? And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. And then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with Yahweh. Okay, recap. This is just a couple couple of paragraphs here of, of what did we just read. The concluding section of the narrative sequence, which we've gone over the last two weeks, reverses the last of the dire effects of Israel's sin with the golden calf. The rejection of Moses made so implicitly and in a selfish and thoughtless panic while he was away with Yahweh on Sinai is negated by Yahweh himself. It's rich in mercy. 
who once more does for Moses what Moses cannot do for himself. As a result of his work and receiving Yahweh's instructions and the brightest of Yahweh's presence, Moses' face glows with a supernatural light. And this light leaves no doubt about Yahweh's, uh, leaves no doubt about Yahweh's favor toward Moses and no doubt about the source of the requirements and guiding principles Moses announces to Israel. As to underline the uniqueness of that symbolism, Moses exposes his face when he's in Yahweh's presence and also as he pauses, passes along to Israel what Yahweh has revealed to him for them. And then Moses covers his face until the next time. Thus, at the end of the presence, absence, presence narrative, Moses' credibility is restored. Israel can no longer doubt what he says when he reports Yahweh's words to them. And Israel can no longer wonder where he is and what he's doing or whether he will return when he is beyond their sight. The way is thus cleared for the uh, continuation of Yahweh's revelation, particularly in the fulfillment of the instructions he has already given. All right, that's the old. That's the glory of God. And I think, right, and there's a lot of text in there that you might say, yeah, it didn't really have a whole lot to do with the glory of God, right? But it's re-talking about the law. But in that, we see God displaying his glory. And then we're going to now see the, the New Testament glimpse that we get to the glory of God. And who is he? And how should it affect me? How should it affect you? I want to read Matthew chapter 17. This is often called the transfiguration of Jesus. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. The four of them go up there. And there he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And just then he appeared before them, and just be- appeared before them, who? Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. These three human beings are witnessing the glory of Jesus as he communes and talks with Moses and Elijah. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters or I will put up three altars to worship, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Like Peter, shut your mouth, man. Right, you don't get it, right? This is, this is all about Jesus and it's all about God and who he is and his power and his glory. So I want to set these things up for the three of you. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Right? I would imagine Peter would have felt a little sheepish here. Right? Let's build these three altars. And then Yahweh, like the creator of the universe, says, This is my son whom I love. I am well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples heard this. They fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. I want to look at one more passage tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's a pretty easy tie because Paul here is going to specifically look at this idea of Moses seeing the glory and his face shining in this veil, right? What does that mean now here to us, a new covenant under Christ? It says, now if the ministry that brought death, that's the law, 
all right, the law, this ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, Ten Commandments, if that came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, this was never meant to be a permanent thing, and yet it was still glorious. If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Right? We've talked about this. The law just points out how sinful and disobedient I am, and yet God shows his grace and perpetuates his grace to all those who are under the law, and now we've been set free from that. We've been set free to something that is more glorious. How much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory. Now, in comparison with the surpassing glory, and if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are bold. Bold in what? Sharing our story, sharing our faith, sharing what we have learned about who God is. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for, this, for to this day the same veil remains, and the old covenant is read. That if we try to live by the law, we die by the law. That's the veil. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Not bondage, not do this, act like this, you gotta behave, you gotta do better. It's freedom. And so therefore, in my freedom, I now get to worship and glorify my God and Savior that is far more glorious than the old covenant, and I do this because I love him. And I do this because he's worthy of worship and of praise. The Lord's glory, and we all, with an unveiled face, contemplate the Lord's glory. We don't need a veil if we're in Christ. And we are being transformed, transfigured, it's the same word here, into his image with ever-increasing glory. We are, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Peter N. says this, Paul, right, in this passage, he's drawing an analogy between Moses and the church, and so he looks at this story from Moses' perspective, and he sees Moses recurring meetings with God as an indication that he needed repeated exposure to the glory. One shot wasn't good enough. As the glory faded, the veil would be worn and Moses had to go back in for another dose of God's glory. But we, those who are in Christ, we are not like that. For us, the veil need not be worn because our glory does not fade. For we are in Christ. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles 
are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them. What are them? The, tr the troubles, the, the wasting away, the issues that we have in this world and the sin that that glory that we attribute back to Christ far outweighs all of that. So we fix our eyes, not on what has been seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What is unseen, this glory of Christ and what he has done is unseen, yet every human being looks for this. They all want more. They're not satisfied with whatever it is that, that life has given them. Love what Blaise Pascal says about this. He was a, a Catholic theologian uh, in the 1600s. Sure. So there once was in man true happiness, okay? Talking about the garden. In the garden of Eden that they would walk with their creator in the cool of the day. There once was in man true happiness of which now remain to him only the mark and empty trace. We were created from the beginning to be, a, to be in communion with God. We've been created to worship God. And so when that thing is removed, there's only the mark and that empty trace which he in vain tries to fill from his surroundings, seeking from things absent, the help, he does not obtain the things present. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite, immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. The phrase that a lot of people like to use is that every human being has a God-sized hole in their heart. And what Blaise Pascal is saying here is, yeah, there's a God-sized hole because only God can fill that. C.S. Lewis, though, had some problems with this. His issue was, but yeah, but why glorify? Right, if, if it's glory, if he needs glory and needs praise, isn't that selfish? But if we've been created to worship God, how egotistical is he? All right, so C.S. Lewis had some troubles with this, but then he kind of has this epiphany. It's actually really, really, really cool. I'm gonna read this. This is from... Uh, the reflections on the Psalms. It says, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or of anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or giving of honor. And I've never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Not all of enjoyment naturally flows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, a different culture, uh, different words. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. My whole, more generally difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly divine, uh, denying to us as regards to the supreme valuable value of God, what we delight to do. What indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. Okay, this, this phrase is money. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. It is a pointed consummation that we praise 
We glorify God and Christ and his spirit, not because we're forced to, because we've been set free from that. We respond with joy because that expression completes the enjoyment. Right? John Piper, right, down the street from us. That God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And so when my satisfaction and my enjoyment comes from God, I re my result is glory and glorification because he's worth it. I was reminded this week, we, I teach uh, systematic theology, and we had our first class this last week, and just going over the syllabus is pretty boring. Uh, no, it wasn't. It was pretty great, right? Thanks. So uh, in that class, though, right, there's, a, there's this thing that, that we talked about. We're going to go through this huge book, and there's going to be theologies in here that are sometimes difficult. That if I want to get to know the God who's revealed himself, sometimes I run up to a brick wall, and I just say, I, I cannot wrap my mind around this. When I come to passages with the death of a firstborn son, I struggle. But then every single time I come back to this kind of thinking, and I say, but Jesus. Because without Christ, it's worthless. And so I can struggle with the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility all I want. But in the end, God loved each and every one of us enough to send his son to die for us. That's worthy of worship. It's worthy of praise. My favorite psalms is Psalm 96. And I'm going to end by just reading the first couple, eight verses of this, and then we'll, we'll close in worship and communion like we do every week here. It says this, Sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing to Yahweh all the earth. Sing to Yahweh. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is Yahweh and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But Yahweh made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to Yahweh, all you families of nations. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. It's one of my favorite lines in all of scripture. Ascribe to God the glory that is due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. So simply tonight, gospel application, are you glorifying God? Is it something that maybe you do passively? Do you ascribe to him the glory? Let's do his name. So let's glorify him. Let's worship him. Let's worship him now in our, our prayers. Let's worship him now in our singing. Let's worship him in taking of the communion. That we get to remember but Jesus Every week. Why? Because we tend to forget. I, I forget. So you're, you all have to take communion every week because I'm a sinner. Okay, you might be good. I'm not. I gotta remember this. And you do too. You know that, right? Okay. The bread 
representing the broken body of Christ and the juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for our sins that he covered and the wrath and the justice of God that said, I need to be satisfied. You, human being, cannot do it. Christ did. But Jesus, there's a gluten-free option on this side. Will you bow with me and pray and sing and remember what it is that Christ did for us on the cross? Heavenly Father, Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth, God, all the other idols, all of the other false gods out there and that, that take space in our hearts that we try to fill with things, with money, with cars, with boats, with school, with education, with family, with sex, with, with alcohol, whatever it may be that we try to fill in that God-sized hole, it can't. And yet we are so easily pleased as we were reminded of last week that we are so ready like a child to stay in the slum making mud pies because we can't begin to comprehend what it means to go to the beach on holiday. God, you are that holiday. And you have revealed who you are to us. You have taught us your ways. So God, help us to teach others. Help us to proclaim your glory to all people and all nations. And God, help us proclaim that gospel truth to ourselves. That Jesus took on flesh and he died for us. God, would that be real to us today and now? And God, receive this praise, receive this honor and glory that we owe you. That is, do your name. And at the same time, would our joy be made complete in that process of praising you. So God, I thank you and I praise you for your only son that you sent to die for us. And it is his most precious name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.